This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. So I was wondering, y'all heard the one about the brain transplant? No? All right. So some relatives, they were gathered uh, in the waiting room of a hospital as a family member lay gravely ill. And the doctor finally comes in and says, I've got some bad news. The only hope left for your loved one at this time is a brain transplant. It's it's risky, very risky. Insurance, insurance will cover the procedure, but you're going to have to pay for the brain yourselves. And the family members, they were sort of shocked when they heard this. Uh, but after a few moments, someone piped up, well, how much does a brain cost? And the doctor said, $5,000 for a male brain and $400 for a female brain. In the moment like this turned kind of awkward, and the men in the room, they tried not to smile. They were, they, they were avoiding eye contact with all the women. They were smirking and nodding at each other. And a man, he was kind of wanting to rub it in. He, he blurted out, so doc, why does the male brain cost so much more? And the doctor, to whom the answer was obvious, said, look, it's just standard pricing procedure. We have to mark down the price of the female brains because they've actually been used. I, I like that one. <laughs> I like that one. The brain, it's a really like complex thing, right? It's one of the most amazing things about us humans, the brain. One of the most amazing things about this world. And this week, um, while taking some time to hike and to snap some pictures, I was reminded again, yet again, how amazing this place uh, that we're in, this place called Oahu is. I was also reminded of just how incredible this planet is. I was sitting on the edges of an erupted volcano taking pictures of turtles, whales, and seals. Like all at once, and the lens I had on my camera uh, could see out into the ocean over a mile away. And near the whales, there were boats pulling parasailers, and a friend next to me uh, was flying a drone. And in one moment, right, I was just struck by how truly complex life is. The technicalities of just a single camera working, a drone flying, right, a boat running, parasailers sailing, whales breaching, turtles swimming, and so on. All very complex in a very uh, confined space. And I read this week that, that scientists... Right, They believe that they have found, this past week, Earth's oldest asteroid strike. Right? Likewise, uh, scientists believe that they have found proof that stress is linked to graying hair. And scientists uh, come out with this discovery this week or this, 
additional research. Other scientists, uh, they're currently uh, pondering whether sea levels are in fact gonna rise and if greenhouse gases are as bad as once thought. And it's a fascinating world we live in when we read that kind of stuff and hear about that kind of stuff. It's a world full of complexity, a world full of mystery. And that this complexity and this mystery just surrounds us. It's everywhere. There's language, too, which can be very complex. I was thinking this week, uh, for example, about oxymorons. You guys have probably heard the word oxymoron before. An oxymoron is, is a phrase or it's a set of words that they seem to contradict themselves in a funny or humorous way. For instance, Great Depression. Right? Why are those two words together? Great Depression. Uh, civil War. Why are those two together? A working vacation. Um, original copies. Pretty ugly. Freezer burn. Jumbo shrimp. Found missing. Uh, virtual reality. Microsoft works. <laughs> These oxymorons, right, they, they make us think for a moment, sometimes laugh, and then we, we kind of move on. Um, but there's another uh, interesting aspect of language uh, called a paradox. And this is kind of like the big brother to oxymoron. It's our word of the week, by the way, paradox. Right? A paradox is a claim that seems absurd, but after thinking about it, uh, you realize that it could be real or it could be true. A paradox is usually more than just a phrase. It's often not humorous, and it typically keeps us thinking a little bit longer. These paradoxes are kind of like riddles. That's, that's kind of how they function. And one of the most famous is from an ancient philosopher, and it's known as the Ship of Theseus Paradox. Anybody ever heard of this? No. The Ship of Theseus Paradox. It explores this idea. Try to hang with me here. Um, let's say that we have a brand new, big wooden ship. A whole ship built out of wood, right? A big old wooden ship. It's brand new. And for our purposes, we're going to name the ship Weekend Delight. All right? Now, over a period of, say, a decade, right? Ten years, we have to replace each part of the ship just incrementally or slowly. And when we finally put the last replacement part on, the last replacement board, the question is raised, is the ship still the same ship as it was 10 years ago? Some of you are saying yes, some of you are saying no, right? Is the ship still weekend delight or is it a new ship? Is it a different ship? This is a paradox, right? It kind of gets you thinking like, it kind of blows your mind for a minute. It's a pretty interesting question. And it, it gets at the nature of change, right? It gets at the nature of identity. And change. We, we could ask that of humans too. I'm Michael, uh, but am I the same Michael I was 10 years ago? It's kind of perplexing. Most of us would say yes to that one, but still it's kind of perplexing. It's challenging to think about. And that's what paradoxes do, and that's also one of the reasons that a lot of people just shrug these paradoxes off, because they don't want to think so hard about them. Most people in life tend to want easy answers. 
Most people in life tend to want easy answers. But the reality of life on this planet is things are complex. Things are complex. People are complex. Relationships are complex. Communication is complex. Suffering is complex. Why is it in this crazy complex world that two police officers can meet their end while serving a Sunday morning eviction notice? Why? Why? How does it happen that a government can bring an entire airplane of citizens uh, down on a morning, right? How? Why? How is it that the Twin Towers could come tumbling down by the hands of just a few? How? Why is it that we hurt one another? Purposefully or not, why? How does that happen? It's complex. Why are our emotions so complex? Why do we feel the way we feel and then it changes? Why? Right? And sometimes in this life, answers aren't easy. Life's complex. Sometimes we have to work through difficult things to find answers. Sometimes we don't find answers. On occasions, we don't find the answers we want. And I think at, at our core, though, what most of us do want, what most of us kind of long for, that we hope for, is, is a better tomorrow, a better future. We all want that. We don't want any sh more ships going down. We don't want any more towers falling. We don't want any more officers shot on Sunday mornings, right? We, we don't want any of that. We want a better tomorrow. We want to know that things will be better than they were yesterday and today. We want it to be well with our souls. Right? And so our focal text for this morning is Revelation 2, 8 to 11. And fortunately, it can speak to such things. This brief text in itself is somewhat complex. And after we read, I want to point out a few of the complexities here. All right. The, the text says this. And for the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things. The first and the last, he who was dead and made alive, says, I know your hardship and your poverty, but you're wealthy. And the blasphemy, saying, and I know the blasphemy from those saying they themselves are Jewish officials, and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some from among y'all into prison in order that you'll be tested and you'll have hardship for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. The one having ears, let him hear. What does the Spirit say to the churches? The one overcoming will never be harmed by the second death. One of the first things that I want to note here amid the complexities is this recycling of titles that we're seeing happening, right? The first and the last, as well as he who was made dead, or he who was dead and made alive. They're, they're all taken from Revelation 1. And so as you read the addresses uh, to each of these churches, you're going to find titles that were used in the first chapter of Revelation, and now they're applied to Jesus uh, or now, now they're applied to Jesus as each of the churches are addressed. Right? So that, that's an interesting textual complexity that's going on here. And, and 
what you see here is a lot of contrast, right? You have um, dead and alive, first and last, and, and a bunch of other ones. Jesus uh, speaks and he mentions hardship twice. He contrasts poverty and wealthy. Right? He contrasts those committing blasphemy with those who are faithful and overcoming. One of the questions that comes up, what does he mean by blasphemy here? Right? He contrasts the, the faithful Smyrnans, Smyrnaeans, however you want to say it, with those who are synagogue of Satan. Namely, the group we talked about last week called the Nicolaitans, who are causing trouble in the church as they pose as false apostles and false officials, Jewish officials or leaders. Unlike those in Ephesus, the Christians in Smyrna, uh, they, they haven't neglected the church. You remember as we read about Ephesus last week, that was one charge against them from Jesus, that they had neglected their first love, the church. Nevertheless, the folks here in Smyrna continue facing hardships. And, and they're facing them from this group that's stirring up trouble within the church. And Jesus tells the Christians there to not be afraid, that they're about to suffer, and that they're going to be tested, and that they'll be imprisoned, and that they'll face hardship for 10 days, and that they should, in the face of it all, remain faithful unto death. That's a huge ask. Remain faithful unto death. And if they overcome, if they do that, then they're promised that they won't be harmed by the second death. And Jesus will also give them a crown of life. Right? There's so much going on here. There's so much to this. And I, I can't possibly speak about everything, so I'm going to touch just on a few things. And first, I, I want to make note of uh, this, this bit about suffering and, and hardship for ten days, maybe imprisonment. Because there's a part of me that, that's very curious about whether uh, those in Smyrna who are going to face this, this hardship and this suffering, that they're, they're actually like John, right? That they're going to go do time on Exile Island, Patmos, with him. If so, you know, from my perspective, um, it may well have been these folks from Smyrna who did a little bit, these short stints of time there on Exile Island, Patmos with John, that carried John's written text of Revelation back to the mainland. Right? That's how it got back to the mainland and shared and spread around. All right. Moreover, another thing that's going on here is that there are some echoes from the book of Daniel. And if you remember back to that story of Daniel, um, him and his colleagues, they suffer for 10 days. They're essentially thrown in, in prison for 10 days, right? They're, they're locked away for 10 days, but they overcome. So could John be drawing on Daniel's story here? Kind of interesting to think about. And we have this mention of a crown of life. Now, for many, uh, the first place their mind goes to with this whole mention of a crown of life is to athletics, right? to, to sports, an Olympic-like game. Is it athletic imagery? It's a good question to ask. For my part, I don't think so. I don't think the crown is referring to anything athletic. It's actually wedding imagery, I think. Because in ancient Judaism, it was common at a wedding for a groom to be given a crown to wear. And the idea was that this groom or bridegroom, when, when getting married, they put the crown on him and he became like king for a day. Right? Likewise, the bridegroom's outfit was meant to imitate that of a priest or the high priest. And moreover, the quarters of the marriage chamber 
were often decorated to imitate the temple sanctuary. And the idea, too, was that the bridegroom became a priest for a day. And sometimes after the wedding, a bride would give the groom uh, a, a gift as well. And so in this brief mention of Jesus saying that he'll give to the church that overcomes a crown of life, we need to hear some of these connections, kingly connections and priestly connections. The one who rules over all will give us a crown, will give the church a crown, the bride a crown. The priest who has sacrificed everything and brings us into the presence of God will give us a crown. But here's the thing, I don't think it's just, just any old crown. Not just a generic sort of crown. This crown of life, I think, is Jesus' crown of thorns. It's not, not necessarily a gold crown, but it's a crown of thorns. And, and here's what I want you to envision or think about. Right, think about this with me. Can you imagine a scene where Jesus, the King of Kings, the great high priest, who was crucified on a cross and crowned with this torturous crown of thorns, the crowns that were pushed down on his head and drew blood from his head. Can you imagine a scene where Jesus himself lifts that crown of thorns off of his head, the crown that brought us life, and he takes that crown of thorns and crowns us with that? Can you imagine that? In that act, right? That, that's the most humble act that I, I tried to think of a more humble act. I couldn't think of one. And that, that act, right? Jesus is identifying us, his bride, with himself. He, he's viewing us as co-sufferers, worthy to be viewed and called co-sufferers with him. And friends, I don't know that there could be any greater honor. I don't think so. And this is paradox at its highest. How can the king of kings, the great high priest, put his crown of thorns on us? How are we worthy? How are we worthy to be called co-sufferers with him and recognized as co-sufferers with him? And if you, you try to envision that, it's, it's a bit challenging, it's a bit difficult. But could you imagine that? Could you imagine if Jesus approaches you and puts that crown of thorns on you? Well, many have thought, oh, it would be great in the end to hear God say to us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And indeed, that would be amazing. But this kind of takes it to another level. Jesus giving us his crown, really? And one of the reasons it's, it's so moving and so mind-blowing, really, is because Entering into another person's suffering is, is a sacred act. When Jesus suffered for us and entered into our suffering, our suffering world, when he stepped into that, it was a sacred act. And when we suffer for him, it's a sacred act. And when we enter into someone else's suffering, it's a sacred act. And there's this sense in which the person letting you into their hurt and into their pain and into their suffering, they have to be vulnerable to do that. There's no way to do it without being vulnerable. Entering into it, 
requires vulnerability as well. And both people, it's like they're saying to one another, you know what, I love you enough to hurt with you. I love you enough to take on your hurt. I care enough about you to suffer with you. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking about entering into or staying into like an abusive or ungodly situation or relationship. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about entering into someone's gunk and helping them. When I was in Ethiopia a couple years, that's what I was doing every single day. I was entering into this government orphanage called Kebebe Tzahai. And in there, with all these suffering kids, you know, I would enter into that daily suffering with them. It was hard. It was so difficult. It was draining. It was taxing. And it hurt. Right? It, it hurt to see kids dressed in rags. And it was a, it was a challenge for me to, to see and smell the absolute squalor there. And I would leave there every day on empty knowing that I'd be back at it tomorrow. And I was having to figure out new ways to, to smuggle food in to this orphanage in the meantime to give the kids a little something extra to eat. I had kids climbing all over me and touching my face and my arms and my hair. And it made me squirm and it made me uncomfortable. But I had to enter into that suffering. And when I came to the bridge, I had to become vulnerable again. I had to be vulnerable again. Ministry calls for that, that vulnerability. But you had to do the same. Right? You, had to do, you, you were in a holding pattern, right? The sort of season of waiting, wondering what's next. And so there's a great vulnerability in having a pastor come into the life of this congregation and begin sharing in it. That requires vulnerability. There's going to be vulnerability in the hospital visits in the challenging sermons, in the leadership decisions, in the community decisions, and so on, to be part of the body of Christ in a local congregation requires vulnerability from me and from you. It just does. There's no way around it. And sometimes that vulnerability leads to beautiful things. Sometimes it's really, really hard and tough. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's redemption. Sometimes folks move on. Sometimes there's healing. Sometimes there's a wake of pain and hurt and suffering. And as the pastor here, I, I take all that seriously. It's not lost on me, not at all, how tough suffering can be. We pastors, we carry around a bunch of weights. A bunch of them. Did you know that? We carry around lots of weights. We're like weightlifters who carry around invisible weights. You can tell I haven't been using real weights. But we carry around all these invisible weights. Right? We, 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 we carry around things that we know about you that we keep in strict confidence that nobody else knows about. We, 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 we help you carry those things. We carry around weights of responsibility for finances, for spiritual growth. 
We're always concerned about that. We carry around these weights of thinking about the, the church's well-being, the, the relational health within the congregation, the numerical growth is a concern, church discipline, etc. We carry around the weights of, of hurts that are doled out to us and hurts that we've doled out to you. Sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. We carry around the weight of, of trying to be peacemakers. We carry around all these weights. And when I encounter something, I can't go home to my spouse and, and, and my family and tell them like y'all can. I can't do that. You got a problem with me or somebody else in the church, you can go home and tell your spouse and your family. I can't do that. And so we're often left to shoulder these things and, and, and to carry them on our own. And it's tough and it's difficult and it's very hard and it's taxing. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot, there's a lot that's sacred about that. But it doesn't mean it's easy. But I take these things seriously. Suffering is tough. And usually it's easier with others. Sometimes it's not, but usually it is. And I've been thinking about that topic for a long time now, suffering. And most people are asking something like, why God? Like, why God? Why me? Right? Why this suffering? Why me? And I suppose it's fine to ask that. But I'm gravitating more in the direction, not of why God, uh, but how, right? Not, not why am I suffering, why me, God, but, but how am I, with your help, going to get through this? How am I going to get through it? And how, how might this moment be redemptive? How might this moment of suffering be redemptive? I was listening uh, to one of my favorite local mus musicians this week, Jack Johnson. You guys have probably, most of you have heard of him, and, and um, I've listened to him for a couple of decades now. But he's got this song that probably a lot of you have heard. It's titled, I Got You. right? And it's a great song, and many of you probably know it. It's a song about this couple who's trying to think about and, and, and plan their future through all these ups and downs. They're trying to get a hold on it. And as I was listening this week with this sort of passage of Scripture from Revelation on my mind, this song that I've probably heard hundreds of times or more, I, I, I heard it different. And I heard it as the bride of Christ, the church, singing to God. Right? The bridge portion of the song says, this waits too much alone. Some days I can't hold it all. You take it on for me. And then, then Christ responds back, right? When tomorrow's too much, I'll carry it all. I got you. I got you. I got everything. I got you. I don't need nothing more than you. I got everything. Christ saying that to his church. Bride, I got you. I've got everything. I don't need nothing more than you. What a cool place to find God in the middle of that song. I heard it so many times. And in that, I was reminded that Jesus 
helps his bride shoulder her burdens. Christ, in the midst of the suffering, extends to us a way to redeem it. And as the church, we do the same with and for one another. We extend ways to redeem the suffering to one another. Say that again. We extend ways to redeem the suffering to one another. We imitate Jesus by taking off our crowns of suffering and placing them on one another. And that's a beautiful picture of the church. Every single one of us in this room this morning has something to deal with. Every one of us. Every last one of us. And we, we all know what it is to hurt. We know what it is to suffer. But what an incredible thing it would be, right, to be known as a congregation, a church that shares its crowns of suffering with one another. Entering into moments of suffering with one another can be a very redeeming thing. It hurts, but it can be a redeeming thing. Look, we, we've all heard it, and, and there's a lot of truth to it. Hurt people hurt people. Right? Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people with their actions. Hurt people hurt people with their words. Hurt people hurt people with their gestures. Hurt people hurt people with their conniving, their gossiping, their undermining, their arrogance, their bitterness, their hatred. Hurt people hurt people. I recently uh, came across this article about weddings. But it wasn't a typical article. Uh, this one was about fiancés leaving their significant others standing at the altar. There's a whole plethora of stories about this. They're standing there waiting for the other to come in, but the other never did. You know, moments like that, they're painful and they're awkward. But someone had been hurt too many times. Blamed too many times, taken advantage of too many times, rejected too many times. And moments before walking out, they called it off and they took off and didn't make it down the aisle. And friends, while the analogy isn't perfect, I realize it's not going to be a perfect analogy, there's a sense in which a church that decenters Jesus is like that. Right? They, they hurt and they reject and they blame and they take advantage of Christ and at the end of the day, they've edged the bridegroom out just enough that this relationship isn't for him. And he knows it. He knows that. And while it would never be his choice to leave or forsake, he can't force them to stay. He can't force them to do the same. And so he steps out gracefully and bows out. And as harsh as it may seem, because of our human insolence and arrogance and self-blindness, we don't often realize that we've done so much to damage things. And as we stand at the altar, we can stand there alone when we decenter Jesus. And if that's us, we're probably standing there alone and blaming still. Why, God, why? Why you do this? Why'd you do this to me? But we're left there at the altar alone. A bride at the altar alone, a groom at the altar alone, a church that decenters Jesus stands alone. 
stands alone at the altar. But a church that keeps Jesus centered can cry out. A church that keeps Jesus centered can trust. Right? It's mysterious. It's complex. But it's also kind of simple. It's a paradox. At one and the same time, we can cry out to Jesus, I got you. Right? I got everything. Jesus, when I've got you, I got everything. And Jesus can turn right around and say the same exact words to his bride. I got you. I don't need nothing more than you. I got you. It's an insane paradox. And so it is. We, we have this bridegroom in Jesus who can and is willing and does shoulder our burdens. He carries us. He's faithful to his word, his covenant. And so this morning we're reminded that life is complex and life is mysterious. But simply put, God loves his bride. And as long as we've got him, we've got everything. And as long as we've got him, we don't need nothing. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together this morning, if you're able, and I'd ask you to receive this benediction. And now, may you realize that when this weight's too much to carry alone, God the Father says, I got you. And in those days when you can't hold it all, may you realize that Christ says, I'll take it on for you. And when tomorrow's too much, may you realize that the Spirit says, I'll carry it all I got.